Good, perfect. Good morning, Second Service. How you doing? Good to see you. Um, how did you like this week? Wasn't it gorgeous? Man, I will take, I hope that's the way it is all summer long, man. That was just beautiful. But it's, it's Wisconsin, so we got another month of whatever this junk is outside, but we did need the rain, and so praise God for that. Um, and like I, say, like I always say, uh, when you get these beautiful days like last week, you just treat it as a gift from God and enjoy it to the fullest. But guys, it is great to see you this morning. Uh, welcome to Whitestone. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands. The ushers will get that to you. If you need a pen, hold up a couple fingers and they'll get that to you as well. Well, guys, we are still in the midst of the series of Piercing the Darkness. I have about three or four more weeks, uh, more Sundays on that, and I think we'll be wrapping it up. But as you remember, the whole premise of this series um, has been to try to help us go into our circles of our kingdom and to pierce the, the darkness with God's light. Um, we've been trying to focus on what it means to obey the Great Commission. Uh, what does it mean for us to go out and make disciples in those circles? And we've been trying to learn how to do that. Now, we have talked about a lot of things, but the last two sermons we have kind of uh, been focusing a lot on theology, a lot on what, what Jesus accomplished for us. Like, for instance, two weeks ago, we talked about what Jesus did for us on the cross and, and what that means for us, what it accomplished for us. Last week, we talked about on Resurrection Sunday, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus and what his resurrection accomplished for us. And there was a lot of stuff. So two, those were two very absolutely crucial things that Jesus had to do for us to become children of God, to live the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom life right now. And the reason we took time to do that is because if we're going to go out and make disciples, we need to be able to impart those crucial parts, those, that crucial information to these disciples as well, because they need to know the full good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is so much more than just going to heaven when we die. And hopefully you're starting to understand that now. And that is an important thing that we have to communicate these people to these people that God has us ministering to. So hopefully you're taking this stuff in. Now I know the last two weeks have been full of a lot of information. I get that. I typically don't preach about this theological information. But this stuff is very important. And it's very crucial information to know. And I know I've dumped a lot on you. In these two weeks, and sometimes it's hard to sit in those chairs with the warm little air all around you and try to take this information and try not to fall asleep, and, and I get that. Trust me, I've sat through a lot of sermons like that myself, um, and it's hard to concentrate and to t retain everything. So I hope you were able to retain the stuff we talked about. I, I understand if it was hard for you, um, but it's important stuff. Now, having said all that, guess what? I got another theological... <laughs> sermon for you today. And it's one more, one more, and then we're going to get into some practical stuff. But I think the stuff we're going to talk about today is absolutely crucial for every single one of us. We have to know this stuff. We have to. So many people do not understand this stuff. So many people have never been told this stuff. So how are we going to tell the disciples that we're making to follow Jesus all this stuff as well? We got to know this. So I'm going to encourage you to really lean in and pay attention today. For some reason, I have a really, it's raining outside, and I got the driest mouth. So forgive me, I'm going to be drinking a lot. All right. The thing I want to talk about today, guys, is this very unique term that's used in Christianity that we throw around a lot, and it's a term, 
born again. How many of you guys have heard of being born again? Okay, yeah. It's a very common term used in Christianity. I remember when I worked construction, uh, we had this plumber on the job with us, and we kind of became friends with him. And uh, he, he said, Luke, what, what religion are you? And I'm like, well, I don't like to define myself really with a religion, but I says, I, I guess I, you could just call me a Christian. And he goes, oh, that's cool. He says, you know, I, I used to live next to a bunch of born-agains. And I'm like, oh, really? I said, that's what they called themselves? He goes, yeah, they, they call themselves born-agains. It was really weird. I, was, I don't know what these born-agains are all about, but just really strange people. And on the inside, I'm like, well, I guess I'm a born-again, too, so I don't know what that means, but I didn't tell him that. Um, but yeah, it's a term that's often thrown around. Uh, I'm born again, he's born again, she's born again. However, that phrase or that term, being born again, in current Christianity, in my opinion, has very much lost its meaning. Because what I tend to see happening is that born again basically becomes the equivalent of someone saying, I have been saved, okay? So born again and I have been saved, obviously people just tend to make those the same thing. Which being saved for most Christians means what? Going to heaven when we die. That's what being saved is. We have our ticket to heaven. And that's often what we mean by someone being saved. Well, being born again has found to be the equivalent of that. When you say somebody is born again, it means they're going to heaven when they die. So um, those things have basically become that. Born again has basically just come to be a person professing faith in the death of Christ to bear the punishment for their sins, sins that it would otherwise fall on them. Okay? Which is true. That did happen. We talked about that with Jesus two weeks ago. But they just profess to believe that. But as I've mentioned so many times before, this type of understanding of what born again means usually leads to lives that do not involve discipleship. They do not involve participation in, to the divine life that God has given us, the eternal life, which then, of course, the natural result is spiritual transformation does not occur. So then we have a society and we have churches full of discipleshipless Christians whose lives are hardly any different, if different at all, from non-Christians. And we just have Christians throwing out excuses like, well, hey, I'm, not, I'm just human, or saying things like, well, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. Well, guys, there's something very wrong with that picture, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks. How can we pierce the darkness with God's light if we aren't living as children of light? Let me tell you something, born again means so much more than that, and I want us to look at that today. I'd like us to change the way we look at that term and try to, if we can, take on the entirety of that meaning because it's huge. And to do so, we're going to be using some, once again, some fancy theological jargon, some fancy words, okay? So, the words born again, in case you did not know, are Jesus' words. He is the one that coined that phrase. And they are found in John chapter 3. And it's the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was part of the ruling council. And he had been watching Jesus go throughout the land, healing the sick and performing miracles and casting out demons and preaching with authority. And something, even though he was, usually all the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus, Nicodemus was like, man, something is different about this guy. So he sneaks in the cover of night. He comes to Jesus. And this is what it says here in John chapter 3. 
Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus sees Jesus living this supernatural kind of life, a life from above, a life infused with the very power of God himself. And so he knows Jesus is special. He knows that God is doing life with him somehow. He just doesn't know how he's doing it. And so he's going to ask Jesus, how is this happening? And Jesus answers him like this. He goes, very, very truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, there they are. There, there, there are those famous words, born again. So what did Jesus mean by being born again? Well, to explain that, I want to pause here in John chapter 3, and I want us to back up all the way to the beginning of human history and talk about how God created mankind. So let's just do that very briefly. Um, as we all know that God created mankind, in, John, in Genesis chapter 3 we see that, or 1, 26 and 27, we see that God created mankind to rule the earth, Okay. So let's just real quick cover. Sorry, guys, I'll try to do this swaveling little thing like Hannah White or whatever her name is on Wheel of Fortune. We, what, what are we? Are we physical? Yes. But what else do we have? We have a spirit. So not only do we have physical flesh, but we have a spirit as well. Okay? Now tell me, what is God? He is spirit. God is not flesh, He is spirit. So we were created to rule, we were created, to, we were created in the image of God, so we were created to reflect God's glory, reflect God's love, reflect God's goodness on this earth to everyone around us, okay? Now we were to do that via a relationship, okay? Now that relationship happens via our spirit, okay? God is spirit, he communes with our spirit, and then we rule and we, we represent him or image him on this earth. And we can do it perfectly, Adam and Eve could do it perfectly because they were spiritually connected to God. Is everybody with me? Okay, now, what do we know happened? Sin came into the world, and with sin comes what? Separation or death, okay? So that connection with our spiritual source was broken. It was severed. And we know that Adam and Eve suddenly began to physically die, but most importantly, spiritually, they died. It's like a branch being ripped off a tree. It dies. It's no longer connected to its source. So mankind is no longer connected to its source. He and she are spiritually dead. Everybody with me? Okay. Well, unfortunately, all of mankind was spiritually dead. All of humanity was spiritually dead. Look at Romans chapter 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. Let me ask you some questions. How many have sinned? How many were spiritually dead? How many were disconnected from their source? All people. So without the Spirit of God empowering them and filling humanity, humanity lived just a very earthly and fleshly and subhuman kind of life, a life filled with darkness and mediocrity at best. How can someone live the life from above if they're not connected with their source? They can't. It's impossible. 
and they didn't. Now, you might be asking, well, Luke, there's some great people in the Old Testament, men and women of old, who did some pretty amazing things. How did that happen? Well, if you read the passage very closely, you see that the Spirit of God worked with them. The Spirit of God came alongside them and empowered them to do these, great, these amazing things. But that was not the norm. The rest of humanity did not have that privilege. Well, Jesus shows up on the scene. And he's living this supernatural, powerful, amazing kind of life. And Nicodemus clearly sees that, man, there is no way Jesus could do that humanly. He is somehow connected to God. So that's why he asked Jesus, he's saying, why, how, how, we know you're from God. What, what's going on here? You got to give me, the, give me the, 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 the background here. And Jesus says these words, well, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, Jesus is saying this, Nicodemus, what you're seeing in me is the kingdom of God at work. And there's no way anyone can see and experience the rule and activity of God in their lives unless they are born again. They have to be reborn. In other words, they have to be regenerated. Okay? Remember how our spirits were dead? Well, they need to be made alive again. That's called regeneration. Okay? Here's a definition for regeneration. Now, guys, I'm going to give you several definitions today. Some of them are going to be very long. I don't want you to spend the entire time trying to jot down the notes real quick so that you don't listen to what I'm saying. Just take out your phone, snap a picture of it, and then tonight when you're lying in bed, go over it and just review it, pay attention to it. Okay? Um, they're going to be long. You won't have time to take the notes. But regeneration is the event when a new life from above enters a person and his or her spirit is made alive. In other words, it's the act of being born again. So Jesus says, yeah, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. Now Nicodemus was a bit confused by that, okay? And maybe even jokingly, he says, oh, uh, you're gonna have to explain to me, Jesus, how I can do this as an old man. Am I supposed to climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? Now scripture doesn't tell us if Jesus laughed or not. And it doesn't tell us if he said, Nicodemus, don't be an idiot. I don't know what Jesus said right to that, but he did say this. He says, Nicodemus, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit it gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Jesus is like, yes, of course, you must be born of your mother, but you must also be born of the Spirit. Flesh only gives birth to flesh. In other words, when you were born, only your flesh was born. You were not born with a new spirit. That spirit is dead. It is disconnected. So you need to be born of the Spirit. To experience the kingdom of God in your life, you have to have the Spirit of God in you, Nicodemus, and you of all people should know this. Then Jesus goes on. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You, know, you hear the sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, there's many viewpoints of what Jesus was saying in this statement. Here's what I believe he was saying. He's saying, Nicodemus, when someone is born again, when someone is given life from above, when someone is plugged back into their source, in other words, when someone has the Spirit of God in them, their life is different. It's powerful. It's supernatural. 
the things they do and how they live can't be humanly explained. You will see a simple human being living out an otherworldly kind of life and you won't be able to explain it. Just like the wind. You see what it does, you hear it blowing, but you don't know its source. You don't know what it's going to do next. Same is true of everyone born of the Spirit. They have this unseen force inside of them to enable them to live this life from above. That's what it means to be born again in the Spirit. Now, Whitestone, what I'm wanting you to see is that to be born again is to be born of the Spirit. When you're born in the Spirit, your dead spirit, remember this thing? It is now reconnected with its source. And your spirit is now made alive. Okay? The Holy Spirit regenerates your spirit. He brings your spirit to life. You become spiritually alive. Why? Like I said, you're connected back together. Okay? You now have access to the life from above. Now, the question you might be asking, well, Luke, how does this even happen? Okay? Well, that was Nicodemus's question too. Jesus tells him all this stuff and he goes, well, how can, how can this be? And Jesus kind of scolds him a bit. He's like, dude, you are part of the ruling council. You're a Pharisee. You're a teacher. You should know this stuff. Why are you asking me this, this stuff? And then Jesus says something very interesting to Nicodemus's question. Nicodemus says, how can this be? He goes, I'll tell you how this can be. And he goes back and says something very interesting. He goes, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay? Once again, let's back up. Jesus refers to a little tiny story found in Numbers 21 that's only six verses long. But the Israelites are wandering through the desert and they're, you know, winding around because of their unbelief and they're getting impatient and they're kind of cranky and they're grumpy and they start to get snotty towards God and they start to say some mean things. And they're like, God, you know, why are we out here? We never have enough water. We never have enough bread. And the stinking manna that you give us, is pe- we're so sick of it. And they're grumbling and they're speaking against God. So God sends a bunch of snakes into the camp and they start biting people and people start dying. And suddenly the people realize the sin that they have done, that they were speaking against God. And so they rush back to Moses and they're like, Moses, we know that we've sinned against God. We know that what we were doing was wrong. Can you please pray to God on our behalf and ask him to take away the snakes? So Moses prays to God. So God says this. He says, Moses, I want you to make a snake out of bronze, okay? I don't know how you do that, but he had to make a snake out of bronze, put it on a pole, and raise it up. And he says, anyone who looks at that snake will not die. They will be saved from death. So Moses went to work to make a bronze snake. Now, I don't know how long it takes to make a bronze snake. It probably take me like three years, but hopefully Moses was quick with it. But he made the snake, he propped it up on a pole and raised it up, and anyone who believed God and came and looked at that snake were spared from death. Now here's the crazy part. Guys, this wasn't just like, oh, quick look at the pole. The, the Israelites, there were millions of them. So some people had to hike for miles to go see this pole. So they had to believe in God to such a degree that they're like, this is what God's word was. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to go look at this pole so I can see this snake and I can be saved. Now Jesus goes on. 
He says, Nicodemus, just like that snake was lifted up on that pole, guess what? I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, when I'm lifted up, that's happening so that anyone who believes in me will have eternal life. In other words, Nicodemus, you want to know how someone gets this life from above? You want to know how someone is born again? Well, I am going to do what is necessary to make that possible for anyone who believes in me. I will take care of the necessary part. I will be crucified. I will be buried. I will rise again from the dead. And all so that anyone who believes in me can have this eternal life, can have this life from above. And then we come to the famous John 3.16. And he says, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, the reason why this is happening is because God loves humanity. He loves mankind. And because he loves this world, he sent me. And anyone who believes in me will have this life from above. He or she will be born again and experience eternal life. Is everybody still with me? All right, good. Now let's talk this through. We've talked the last two weeks about what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what he accomplished on the resurrection. I don't have time to go back and revisit all that, but remember those things? Remember the fancy little theological words? Expiation, which was the removal of our guilt. Propitiation, which was the removal of God's wrath. And reconciliation, which was the removal of our alienation from God. He brought us back together. And then there was the redemption, which was paying for the the ransom that it cost to purchase us out of the kingdom of darkness. And then we talked about how the resurrection, it sealed all these things. It made it secure. Jesus had to raise from the dead to make sure all those things were sealed. Well, keep those things in your mind, okay? Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished all those things. And anyone who believes in Jesus, these things become true of them. Okay? So keep that in your mind. Just hold on to that. So when I believe in Jesus, when I believe that Jesus who is who he says he is, and I believe him in such a way that I know he's right about everything, and I choose to follow him and become his disciple, we got to ask the question, what happens in the spiritual realm? I'll tell you what happens. There's something called justification that happens. And let me explain what that is. And I'm going to give you a rather complicated definition. That's why I need you to take your picture rather than try to write it down. I'm sorry, but justification is a very complicated thing. But I know you can wrap your heads around it. Here's what justification is. It is the act of God that forgives our sin. And it enables us to have eternal life in God's presence both now and later. We always talk about later, but it's for now too. Now, within justification is also regeneration, which we've talked about, which is the instant rebirth of our spirit in which we're given a new self that is, pay attention to this, that is capable of living like Christ. Now, here's a key thing I want you to see. It is a part of the process of salvation. It's not the end game. Okay, a lot of people think justification, that's end, going to heaven. No, salvation, it should, that justification is just part of salvation. There's more to that salvation. Okay? Now, remember that sin that kept us separated from God? It kept us from living fully human. 
It kept us from living, you know, it kept us in a life of bondage and, and sin and darkness. Remember that sin? Well, when we believe in Jesus, this justification takes place. All that work that happened on the cross, which we talked about two weeks ago, all that work is imparted to us. Our sins are removed. Our guilt is removed. Our enmity against God is removed. We are now connected to God. And in doing so, we're made alive, we're regenerated, we're given a new self, we're given a new creation, and we're now able to become Christ-like in our behavior and our thoughts in our entire lives. Amen? In other words, we're born again. We're given this life from above. We're reconnected to our source, which then allows us to participate in the rule and activity of God, which is the kingdom of God. We're given this supernatural kind of life. Just like Jesus told Nicodemus would happen. Listen, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. But when you are, you can see it. You can participate in it. You can live this eternal life from above. Is everybody still with me? All right. We got a ways to go, so dig in. Now, you may be asking yourself, okay, Luke, now what? I believe in Jesus. I've been justified. I've been regenerated. I've been given this new life from above. Now what? What is the next step in this salvation that I have been given from Jesus? That next step, that next process is called sanctification. Okay? Now, let me define sanctification for us. Once again, take a picture. It's a long one. But it is the intentional process by which our inner person comes to, pay attention to this, resemble that of Christ. It is dependent. This is also important. We'll talk about this. It is dependent upon regeneration. It is dependent upon human effort. And it's dependent upon God's grace. But here's the result. The result is an ever-growing and easy obedience to God and relationship with him, which really is deliverance from sin, which is what salvation is all about. So this is the next step in our life of discipleship to Jesus. We believe Jesus, therefore we're going to follow Jesus so that we can become more and more like Jesus. Now, like I have in this definition, this sanctification requires three things to happen. Two belong to God, one belongs to us. It first requires regeneration, which we've talked about, okay? We have to be given this new life from above. We have to be born again to grow in sanctification. If we are not spiritually alive, sanctification will not happen in our lives, plain and simple. It just won't, okay? Because we're dead. But guess what? God does that for us. He takes care of the regeneration. Like it says in Titus, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, regeneration is up to God and his spirit, but guess what? The next part is up to us. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ, requires our effort. Now, as I say that, I know some people get nervous. Because when I start talking about effort in the Christian life, people are like, oh, Luke, you're dangerously getting close to work salvation. It's like you're trying to earn your salvation. 
And I have literally been told by men who have been Christians far longer than I ever have, they said, Luke, you can do nothing in your walk with God. Nothing. It is all God doing everything. You must sit back by faith, believe that God is working in you and transforming you to become like him. It is all a work of God. Now, that sounds great, but it's dead wrong. In Christianity, we are often told we can do nothing without Christ. Guess what? That is true. We can do nothing without Christ. But guess what we end up doing? Nothing. And if we do nothing, I promise you, it is certainly without Christ. So many Christians do nothing in working out their salvation. So therefore, they never grow in their sanctification. They remain immature. They may remain weak. They remain like Christians who look, look much like the world. White, white stone, listen to me. We must put in effort. Sanctification requires effort on our part. Let me show you some verses, and there's, there's many others, but in Philippians 2, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to what? Who's supposed to work? We are. Let me show you another one, 2 Peter. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of that verse. We are to make every what? Effort. Who's supposed to make that effort? We are. Listen to me. Sanctification requires our effort. God will not do it for us. There are parts that he does that only he can do, but there is our part that he will not do for us. But when we do our part, when we put in our effort, we're not trying to earn our salvation. Not at all. Listen to this statement. Take a picture of this so you can have this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to what? Earning. We're not trying to earn a thing, but there is effort involved. And that does not deny the grace of God. Effort is not bad, it's good. Now, speaking of grace, this is the third component to sanctification, the absolutely necessary part of sanctification. Now, when I say the word grace, so many people think grace only has to do with forgiveness. Like, well, thank goodness for God's grace. We usually mean thank goodness for God's forgiveness, I just keep screwing up over and over again, and he gives me his forgiveness. Now, it's true, God's forgiveness is part of his grace, but grace is so much more than forgiveness. Trust me. Do a word study in the New Testament, and you will be blown out of your mind. Here's what grace is. Now, if you don't have this, this definition memorized of grace, you need to do so immediately because we use it all the time here at Whitestone. Here's the definition of grace. Grace is God's power working in us to accomplish what we what? cannot do on our own. Only he can do that. To grow in our sanctification, we have to have God's grace. We need his power. We need his power flowing through us, and that's what's going to help us to obey him. It's going to help us to grow in righteousness. It's going to help us to grow in holiness. It's going to help us to manifest the power of the kingdom of God. We have to have his grace, and grace is power. A supernatural power that when fused, listen to this, that when fused with our effort, 
God does abundantly amazing things in it. Now, in case you didn't catch this, tell me, who do you think the agent of God's grace is? Who is the one that imparts that power to us to do things that we could never do on our own? The Holy Spirit, bingo. He is the agent of God's grace. He is the agent of power. That's grace, walking in us, working in us. It's him. And God's working along with us can produce Christ-like living in our lives. And Whitestone, we should desire that, amen? One last step in this whole salvation process, and that is glorification. Now, hold on, gotta wet the whistle again. It's always so awkward taking a drink because everybody's gotta sit and look at me. Glorification's an interesting word. Um, and I'm not gonna define glorification, I'm rather gonna define the word glory because it's, it's kinda hard to do this, all of it together. But let's talk about glory for a bit. Um, I don't think we think about glory that much, but we really should because when you look at, the word glory is all over scripture. It's all over, and we're talking about God and his glory. Now, there's many things about glory that I do not fully understand. I, I don't get it, I, I'm missing a lot of it, I wanna keep searching it. But one thing I do know that glory is, most definitely is, is light, okay? God is light. God dwells in inapproachable light. Um, a lot of time that light is referred to as glory, okay? Now remember on Christmas night when the angels showed up to the shepherds on the hills and it says, and the glory, what? Shone all around them. So gl glory is definitely light. Okay? When Jesus stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says he glowed like the sun. That was his glory being manifested in a physical way. Now, I mention that because glory is who God is. It's what he is. He's a God of glory. And when someone radiates his glory, guess what? He's imaging who God is. Like, for instance, many in the phase one discipleship, many who've gone through that, you will remember this verse, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus was the radiance of God's glory. And in doing so, he was the exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus imaged God perfectly. Well, guess what? You and I, we were created for glory too. Did you know that? We were created for it. We were supposed to image God perfectly. We were supposed to be the radiance of God's glory on this earth. But we all know what happened. Sin came into the picture. And you all know the verse, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of sin, we can't show forth his glory. Sin caused us to fall way short of it. But what I'm hoping that you're seeing here is that because of what Jesus did for us, justification, regeneration, and the sanctification that's happening in us, we now will begin to be able to shine forth his glory more and more. In 2 Corinthians, it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces co contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Pay attention to that verse. See that? We're being transformed into his image. Whose image? 
God's image. And how are we being transformed into his image? In ever-increasing glory. Increments of glory. More and more we grow in sanctification, and then therefore more and more we display his glory in our lives. We image him better. Here's what I want you to see. I'm going to give you the definition of glory. Take a picture of this because this is a biggie. It is the magnificent splendor, a magnificent outpouring of the radiant splendor of God's power, of God's strength, of God's beauty, and God's goodness. And let me tell you something. Glory constantly fills our universe. It's all over the place. It's permeating all of God's creation. And it's, this glory, it's validating the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. And guess what? It was completely, perfectly reflected in the person of Jesus. And here's a key part. We have access to participate in it through our adoration and obedience to Jesus. Now, I know this seems tough to wrap our heads around. It's easier than you think. Just read it to yourself. Let it soak in. So what do I mean by glorification? Well, the more and more we grow in our sanctification, the more and more we will grow in our glorification. Like 2 Corinthians says, we're being transformed into his image in ever-increasing glory. More and more. Bit by bit, we look like him more and more. We image him better. And that's glorification. Right now on this earth. But there's a final glorification that's coming. Let me show you here. Here is our, our current situation. It was in, we just saw in 318. Let me see if I have it up here. I don't have it in my notes. We don't have it on my notes here? No, we don't have it. All right, I'll skip it. Let's go to Colossians 3, 4. Here is the future glory that's coming. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also, guys, that's you, okay? You also will appear with him in what? Glory. One day that final glorification will come and what a glorious day that will be. You know that in 1 John it says, When we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How do you think he is? He's going to come in all of his. So how are we going to be? Glory. We're going to be filled with glory because we're going to see him. We're like, Jesus, it's you. And glory is just going to consume us. We're going to shine like the sun. That's coming. That is coming one day. Amen? Amen? But until then, guys, we continue to shine brighter and brighter and brighter right now, today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next week. Keep shining brighter, keep shining brighter. And the reason we shine brighter is because after all, we're children of light. And children of light are meant to shine brighter, amen? Amen. So let's do it. Jesus has made it possible to do it. And that's the good news. We've been justified, we've been regenerated. We're being sanctified, and as we apply effort, God's grace through his spirit works along with us so that we shine forth the glory of God more and more, and we take on his image more and more, and the powerful life of the kingdom of God will shine through us. Imagine that. The powerful life of the kingdom of God will shine through us. It will shine in us. It will shine around us. And then people like Nicodemus will come up to us and say, man, what is going on with your life? Obviously, you are connected to God somehow. 
Obviously, you have a special relationship with him because what you're doing in your life is not humanly possible. And when they come up to us and say that, we can say, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me show you what it means to be a disciple of Jesus because following him is the greater op- greatest opportunity you've ever been offered. Let's do it, Whitestone. Let's do it. Jesus did it for us. And remember, there's effort in our part to do it. Let's do it, knowing his grace will work along with us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of information here today. I pray, God, that it's stuck in our hearts and our minds. But I pray that it isn't just information. I pray that it becomes transformation into our lives. I pray, God, that the men and women and the boys and girls of Whitestone would begin to grow in their sanctification so that they can shine forth your glory in ever-increasing measure for the world around us. All for your glory and your honor and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I love you very, very much. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you next Sunday.